Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between host Jacob Smith, Vice President of Bare Metal Strategy and Marketing at Equinix, and Cole Crawford, CEO and founder of Vapor.io. Cole is also the co-founder of the Open19 Foundation, founding executive director of the Open Computer Project, former chairman of the Open Data Center Alliance, and co-founder of OpenStack. In this interview, Cole lays out his vision for creating the world's first intelligent, hypermodular data center solution, and how Vapor is fixing the fundamental architectural problems of the internet. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Vapor.io, the leader in edge computing. We want to be your solution partner for the new internet. Learn more at Vapor.io. And now, please enjoy this interview between Cole Crawford, CEO and founder of Vapor.io, and guest host, Jacob Smith. This is Jacob Smith. I'm a co-founder at Packet and VP of Bare Metal Marketing and Strategy at Equinix, and I'm your host today for the uh, episode of Over the Edge podcast. So my guest today is someone that I'm super excited to talk to. It's been way too long. Cole Crawford, CEO and founder of Vapor.io, the one and only. Cole, how are you today? Hey, Jacob. I'm great. And thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's unfortunate that we can't do this in person because those have always been the best times is to get together and uh, spend time, whether it's uh, Cambridge or San Francisco or Austin. But I hope you're doing well and the family and everyone getting through this time. Thanks, Jacob. We are. And uh, obviously, likewise. Yeah, good deal. Okay, so we have a lot to cover today. And what I was hoping to do is start with, I mean, I think you have one of the more interesting, or maybe everyone has an interesting backstory, but you certainly do. Give the, uh, give the listeners a little bit about where you came from. Who are you? And how did you get here? Oh, uh, how far back are we going here? Um, so I, I got my start in tech. I remember clear as day. I was in high school. And actually, my younger brother and one of his friends were in his bedroom and I walk in and I see this blue screen and I kind of laugh at them like, oh, you got the blue screen to death. And uh, they're like, no, man, this is Linux. So it turned out that it was Slackware. Now, the funny thing about Slackware Linux is it was founded by a guy named Patrick Volkerding. And Patrick Volkerding was involved in something else that I was involved with that wasn't really tech related at all. It was something called Church of the Subgenius. And I don't know if you guys know what that is, but uh, it's, basically, uh, it's basically a spoof on another religion that I won't, I won't name. So Church of the Subgenius, the idea of this Church of the Subgenius was to create Slack, which is effectively just goodwill and sort of peace towards everyone, and hence the name Slackware. So from that moment on, I was hooked on Linux you know, I was a very competitive tennis player in, in my youth. And I mean, I, I can almost say that the computers probably in large part took me away from probably a career in tennis. So I've been all over. Looking back, you might think that it was like reverse entropy, but I kind of started my career at an ISP. That happened to be FreeBSD. But um, I ended up, uh, while I was in school, I worked the night shift at America Online. I ended up back in Denver, Colorado, as a wide area network engineer for US West. 
and worked on shared infrastructure. Actually, we had we owned all the WebLogic instances for US West as well. Went through the Quest acquisition, then went through the IBM Global Services acquisition. Ended up working for Dell, and then I went to work as a contractor for the Department of Defense, where I co-founded OpenStack. Started a company with the CTO of NASA called Nebula, which is a big OpenStack startup. Sold that to Oracle. Uh, I was recruited by Facebook to build Open Compute, so I was the founding executive director for OCP. And then uh, LinkedIn sort of reached out to me and said, hey, that works for other people, but we're a much smaller shop. We need supply chains that we can retrofit our current data centers for. So I ended up co-founding Open19 with LinkedIn, invited your brother <laughs> onto the board. And then uh, very recently, the LF Edge spun up. And you know, I'm very proud to be a, a board member of LF Edge as well. So crazy career, um, looks structured, but guaranteed was unstructured. Nothing planned. Yeah, it, it's one of the funny things, you know, you find people, we have a, a question we ask when we're trying to hire for very key positions at our company. And says, did you work for an ISP in the late 90s <laughs> or early 2000s? And if the answer is yes, just go forward. Go. And if it's not, you know, we can ask other questions. Right? <laughs> so I can check the box. I got, I got a job at Packet if I need it. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're always welcome here. But I love the, the the background in sort of building of the early systems, which of course, you know, the internet goes back further. We can talk about that more in the in the rest of the podcast. But you know, there's this time where we're we're still kind of drawing upon the lineage of things we were doing in the two thousands and building Linux and and making networks work and scaling them from twelve places to more places. And so it's a pretty interesting story. You find a lot of people have had a journey like that. Yeah, I love the unstructured plan, yeah. Very cool. Well, so um, from ISPs and working the night shift at AOL, where did Vapor come from? Like what, I mean, after OCP and you've got, you know, Open 19 and Department of Defense and we're doing all these different things, what, what made Vapor make sense? Why did you do it? Tell us the story. Yeah, great question. And again, you know, I think um, to your point around ISPs, it, you know, it used to be that you did everything. You know, at an ISP in the late 90s, you racked and stacked. I mean, you didn't, you were building Home Depot shelves and you're putting compact servers on Home Depot shelves. So it wasn't exactly the the EIA racks that we have today. But you also did everything else. I managed the mail server. I, you know, like everything that configured the routes. Deal with the IP address space. I mean, everything, right? <laughs> exactly right. I, yeah, for a story for a different time would be how I gained access to a free class C and a T1 totally free for a couple of years. May have been the best entrepreneurial decision ever made. But anyway. We'd love to know about it. <laughs> Vapor was kind of started, again, recursively from the context around some of the work that I'd been doing in the Department of Defense, uh, or I guess with the DOD, but also some of the, you know, some of what was happening in the industry, which was a lot more was being virtualized. There was a lot of talk around how do we move on-prem workloads to cloud? How do we move cloud workloads on-prem? You know, I've never been, I've, well, let me say it the other way. I've always been a super big fan of open ecosystems and open source. Walled gardens are an interesting concept. And wherever possible, I like to tear down walled gardens, hence all of the open source work and the open consortia work that I, I'm involved in. So Vapor, it was kind of started out of what I was seeing from a virtualization standpoint and infrastructure, but also the need for, as, a, as an old guard telco guy, you know, understanding those early protocols like CIPRI and sort of the latency associated with that. Something that, that we talked about, you know, your brother and I actually talked about this years ago at an event that we started back in 2017 or 18 called EdgeCon. The internet 
is still fundamentally broken today if you want to solve for autonomous robotics or autonomous driving or the future state of remote surgery and some of these things like the backhaul associated with a telco network all the way into a cloud network. And I'll give you an example. I live in Austin, Texas, and my Cipri connection, I'm not going to say what provider I'm on, but my Cipri connection ends in St. Louis, Missouri. So I'm going thousands of miles to St. Louis to actually get a, a layer four address. There's no peering in St. Louis, Missouri. There's no big IX in St. Louis, Missouri, but there is in Atlanta, 55 Marietta, just like think of building that you got, you know, you now kind of operate. So there's a big IX there in peering. So if I'm going, say, from Austin, Texas on my smartphone to, let's just say, LinkedIn.com as just a, as a URL. If I'm not going to say the CDN, but if a certain CDN is working, they can cache a lot of stuff in Georgia. If I need to go get net new data, I'm actually going to a data center in San Jose. And then I'm taking fiber back to Austin, Texas. And that doesn't sound like internet that I want to actually, you know, use in perpetuity. I think there, I think there are ways in which we can build a, or I guess, enhance the internet that we've built and make it better. Evolve. Right? You got it. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's a physical thing in many ways. I mean, you talk about your lineage going back down to basically, we're talking concrete and wires and racks and this, you know, this is what's at the base of the internet. But as you've, you've had a, a career in virtualizing a lot of that, we still need to think about the architecture. That's right. And so is that where, what Vapor's part of doing is thinking about the architecture of the internet? hundred percent. You know, there's, you can algorithmically speed up a lot, but you don't algorithmically speed up the speed of light. Like that's impossible. So if you want to be closer to the edge, that's a proximity thing. And then if you're going to be closer to the edge, who's edge? It, you know, all of a sudden it's not for us to choose the killer app for an industry vertical, but we can work backwards from physics and say, okay, What's needed to automate that edge? And if you look back through every successful company, every big, you know, dot-com, every big Silicon Valley startup, one of the things that they did really well, and this ends up being sort of the killer app for X, right? It's not the killer app for Edge or 5G. It's the killer app for everything. Economics, easy button. If you can make it faster, better, cheaper, and you make it easy to consume, you're going to do well. And that was sort of the mission that Vapor was on to sort of fix this architectural issue with the, call it the guts of the internet. And so then I'm going to ask for listeners who don't know, I'm going to ask you to describe what Vapor does in two ways. So the first way, you're talking to, you know, me or one of those dot-com, you know, people who know how the internet works and, and explain what Vapor does that way. And then the other way I'm going to ask you is if your, your partner, who I understand is in uh, real estate, yeah, or to explain what Vapor does, <laughs> how would that sound different? Like to someone who's not in the industry, you know, what, what does it sound like to say I'm in the edge computing space? So just kind of understanding it from those two lenses. Let's, let's give it a go. Wow. Yeah. Okay. For, so to the first one, it's, you know, it's about bringing interconnection and network handoff and backhaul elimination closer to the metros, the underserved tier two metros that don't have an Equinix or a digital or a CoLogix or a QTS or a you know, big sort of data center provider there with both the data velocity and data gravity associated with front hall, mid hall, and back hall. So that's, there's the technical first answer. <laughs> that's the one I understand. <laughs> that's yeah. the one you get. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. If I said that sentence to my wife, I think it would sound like Greek. To her, I would say, if you want to experience, you know, the real-time augmented reality capability for a venue experience, you need the internet to be closer to you. 
uh, more internet, more places. Right. How, how do you make this go faster and be cheaper? Right. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Yeah. And how do you make that run as autonomously as possible? Right. So you put it in more places. You put it closer to the user. And then you, you've mentioned a few times I mean, in that explanation to the expert, you said the word interconnection, you said handoff, a number of things about networks. So let's talk about that a little bit. What is Vapor doing specifically? So tell us about your expansion that you've got going on and where you're, where you're going and what that means. And then also about the idea of handing off all the packets. Tell us more. Well, yeah, great, great question. You know, and, and there's plenty of people out there that would say the edge competes with the core, and that's never been Vapor's view. In fact, every market that we're in, we're backhauling to an Equinix facility and other facilities. So, you know, cloud on ramps and all the things that sort of happen, we think that, that, you know, the core needs to be a part of that equation. But, you know, the reality is how many tier one markets um, are served today by a huge multi, you know, $100 billion equities worth a ton of money. So, so and, you know, obviously these big data center companies, they know how to make capital work with economies of scale where you build big, big buildings. And there's this concentration of tenants and other things that happen there, right? You got it. And, and that's why actually we call them data centers because they become centers of data. You know, at the edge where you care about latency and industry vertical, which, by the way, is if you're I'm just going to say like they might like send a season to sit for using them. But I'm just using it, this as an example. If I'm Apple and I'm making a smartwatch, I want the experience for that smartwatch to exist. Yeah, there you go. For the listeners, I know the video is not being published, but Jacob just showed me his, <laughs> an Apple smartwatch on his hair. You, you're going to want a ubiquitous experience regardless of if you're living in you know, Los Angeles or Akron, Ohio, as an example. And, you know, that might be from a latency perspective, not the best example to use, but I think it serves its point. Vapor primarily enters those sort of markets. And because we sort of trade physical redundancy for high availability through diversified routes, I think we're unique in the data center industry because we actually operate on fiber networks in every market we go to. And, you know, those fiber networks end up looking like a city scale mesh network. And that's how we make the economies of scale work. Because the reality is, as big as, you know, a publicly traded $100 billion data center company can be, the cost of an HVAC system is still the cost of an HVAC system. And if you're going to build that into a fault tolerant environment, doing that at 200 kilowatts is really hard to make the economics work there. So trading physical fault tolerance for resiliency through routing is kind of that cloud native way that I think Vapor has chosen to sort of offer, you know, that similar sort of SLA while still bringing that telco who sits in Akron, Ohio and wants to connect back to a cloud. That's what Vapor does. We kind of view ourselves as that middle mile in that tier two market, helping to eliminate backhaul through, you know, shared economics and neutral host multi-tenant sort of thesis that obviously packets always had and and equinix certainly has had and, and other data center companies so that's kind of what we do we put distributed data centers you know small multi-tenant edge data centers out in these under i would say underserved but certainly smaller markets than the nfl cities tier one cities and then we bring them back sure from a structure of the internet underserved right you can't put everything everywhere in that scaled sense, right? Yeah, exactly. Very interesting. And I'm, I'm intrigued because of your background in open. I mean, you've got, you got four things on your resume that aren't vapor that I see, and three of them involve the word open. <laughs> and so 
When you think about open, how does that inform the strategy for vapor and for the way the internet should work or could work in this next stage, which I'm, I'm hearing from what you're describing, you know, we're talking about a, a shift, new kinds of experiences, new kinds of scale. Uh, we can even touch on, you know, the pandemic and how that might have kind of pushed things forward in many ways. But how does the open inform what vapor does? Like what DNA is there? Access to data. Access to democratized data is something I've always been passionate about, which is why, you know, Linux was such a cool thing. That's why OpenStack and OpenCompute was such a cool thing. We know that as an industry, you don't have to look beyond some of, you know, Intel's predictions or Forrester's predictions or ARM's predictions or Intel's predictions to say IoT and, you know, the industrial sort of the industry 4.0 world is going to have, call it 20 times, you know, or 20 orders of magnitude, more sensors doing more things. And humans, uh, to date, humans, we've basically mechanically turked the internet, right? It's, it, it's actually kind of crazy to me that if you think back to the black and white switchboard pictures where people are plugging things in to a switchboard to connect phone calls, we're doing that today for the internet. This is, some, this is a human-powered thing that we're doing today. And I don't know that we can mechanical Turk that future state of billions and billions and billions of connected devices all doing things. So if you've got a, a data plane, a control plane that can automate a bunch of that, we're big fans of that. So if you break down like what makes the internet work at the architectural level for people that live, breathe, operate, both the operational technology, which is kind of the data center stuff, and then the information technology, which is the servers and the network stuff and all that stuff, it's really funny that the rack itself has always been sort of no man's land because the data center has everything up to the rack and the, you know, the IT guys have everything in the rack, but where has the contextualization been, right? There's never really been IT, OT contextualization. And if there has been, it's come through some super proprietary offering. So we understood early on that we don't operate owner-operated data centers. We don't operate colo, big colo facilities, but a lot of customers are asking for more data because there's a lot more virtualization and they want the orchestration engines doing more. Well, if you're going to, you know, there's a Scottish scientist, Lord Kelvin, who was quoted as saying, to measure is to know. If you can't measure it, you can't know it. And all we wanted to do was democratize those really old legacy binary wire protocols that HVAC systems use and UPS systems use and generators use and build a JSON interface into that, build a codified interface so you could contextualize your owner-operated environment with your colo environment, with Vapor's you know, environment and give you a data plane that you can, you know, with about 20 minutes of time, you write a driver for and now you're contextualizing a bunch of stuff. And you know, our, our goal was always to be from a data perspective, the most transparent company. I mean, we give everything to uh, you, you, you know, as Packet was a customer, uh, is a customer, you had everything we could throw at you, right? You had UPS systems, you had, you had everything that we were monitoring available to you in real time. And as you're virtualizing more of the network, as you're, you know, as, as new capabilities around SD-WAN come into play and virtual network functions come into play and orchestrate like, you know, think VMware or think even OpenStack or Kubernetes or whatever, if that orchestrator doesn't have to just think about the amount of CPU, the amount of memory, the amount of disk, and the amount of network, if there's more for that orchestrator to contextualize, I think that's how we automate this future internet. And that should, you shouldn't differentiate on protocol for that. 
you should differentiate on service. And that's why we did it. So open, open. And it's funny because, you know, you could be mistaken listening to you just describe that, that uh, you're a software company, not a data center company. Cole, watch out. You know, you might get a miscategorized, but the idea that software is your customer is a really interesting point here. Well, we've always shared with you guys a thesis that even for data centers, the developer is the new customer, right? That's been a packet mantra for as long as I can remember. And I will say, you know, yes, we're a data center company, but we are a cloud down data center, not a brick and mortar up data center company. Yeah, makes sense. Well, I love, I'm going to quote Lord Kelvin now that you told me who he is, because we, we always said internally, if you don't know what it is, you can't automate it. Asset management, super boring, but it's one of these things. And if you don't have access, like you said, I mean, things that, you know, it's not your everyday software programmer that says, I wonder what my PDU, I don't even know what the PDU is, but I wonder what it's doing. But when you're talking about these new experiences, there's a layer of physical meets digital, right? And that's where, that's where you're talking about shining the flashlight and saying, we need to put more, we need to put more software here. And we need, that means you need to be more open and, more, and expose more things, so more software. Because uh, your customer could be a hyperscaler, you know, a service provider, a car company, you know, and what you have common there is open standards and open things. Very interesting. You got it. 100%. Cool. Well, I love it. So one, one angle um, that I'm intrigued by is, is most people think about open source and they think about Linux, right? They think about software. And, you know, you've had a couple major projects that you've been like deeply involved in and you're talking about open hardware. <laughs> and in a way, you know, we've all kind of got a sense or at least the, the cloud ecosystem really understands the impact of open source software. But what do you see going forward as the role of open hardware? Like, what's that all about? And where do you think it's gone? Yes, um, this is something we could talk for several hours on. In, in a nutshell, so there's another guy I want to I kind of quote, uh, not necessarily a quote, but Jim Gray, who's a distinguished engineer at Microsoft, went missing. He wrote a book called The Fourth Paradigm. And it's, a, it's actually free. I think you can download it on Microsoft's website for free. But it was basically... I mean, this was this book was printed decades ago, and he predicted, rightfully so, I might add, that at some point it would no longer be efficient to move the storage to the compute. We'd have to move the compute to the storage, and that's a little bit of why the edge is kind of you know where it's at today, because there's a lot of data gravity and a lot of data velocity that's happening in a localized way, and so to kind of use that analogy. Linux was always interesting to me because it was a it was a way. I mean, if you think about when Linus sent his initial email out for what he was working on, it's like it's not going to be very big, and it's only going to work on this hardware. And look where Linux is today. It's running on our phones. It's running in embedded systems. It's running in cars. It's running, you know, in lots of different places. I believe open hardware is the solution again for democratizing both the access because you know hardware. It's kind of a pun, but hardware's hard. You know, software is almost free. If you've got a laptop, you can code. You get a simple IDE and you can, you know, kind of teach yourself from YouTube or, you know, Python for dummies or pick a language and you can write code and, you know, ones and zeros are pretty easy to generate and you can iterate on those mistakes, you know, uh, very inexpensively. Um, we've always said the manipulation of atoms is way harder than the manipulation of bits. And add, you know, and, and hardware rev cycles are slow. When you talk about source code, you know, you're not talking about a simple GitHub repo. 
you're talking about PCB layouts and Gerber files and mechanicals and lots of crazy things that go into the circuitry and the sort of atoms that make up all of the physical aspects of this thing we call the internet. And I've always had a passion for the, uh, you know, coming at the panacea of an opportunity from both sides of the equation. So if you have an open operating system and an open hardware platform, I think that's the combination. Those are the ingredients you need to optimize exactly what you're going to need for your first party or third party service. And, you know, meanwhile, you've got a lot of column, I wouldn't say SMBs, maybe slightly larger than, you know, an SMB, where you do have to think about a bill of materials or a SKU and being able to leverage a supply chain where you have the purchasing power of a Facebook or a Microsoft or a LinkedIn, which is now Microsoft, but where you've got that capability, if you can, if you can share in some of the economics, like I think there's still a huge opportunity for somebody to basically come in and say, okay, X company, we'll just say, you know, we'll just say Microsoft as an example. Microsoft is buying 1 million servers for the next, you know, for the next quarter. Hop onto the, hop onto the thing, have everyone's motherboard, you know, get fractionally cheaper. And as an SI, we'll, we'll ship your stuff to you. We'll put in the BIOS you need. We'll put in that stuff. It always seemed to me that I wouldn't call it a Groupon for, for procurement supply chain, but somebody that could help the economies of scale for that. That's one of these things that I think is still a big opportunity in our industry for open hardware. Because as you know, supply chain isn't easy, right? I mean, managing a, a hardware supply chain is really hard. And then after procurement, you've got vertical integration. How far, you know, do you take that to L7? You take that L10, L11. Once that's done, are, you know, do you have the right software teams working on sort of the implementation and the provision? Like there's a lot of complexity that goes into that. Yeah, all kinds of specialized knowledge. Yeah, all kinds. All kinds of people who worked at ISPs in the late 90s, pretty much, you know. <laughs> Which is crazy, right? Because we used to do everything and now we're like massively specialized, even in, right, even in our own first party capabilities. Well, so open in a way is proxy for inviting more people into it, right? And so... You know, open source certainly allowed that to happen. I think we've seen immense power in open source software, you know, that allows more more opinions, right? More innovation at the layer. And I think you mentioned earlier, add, you know, your value or protect your moat, whatever it is, at the place where you can really do unique value. You know, when we're talking about hardware, obviously there's a huge barrier. You just like with co-location, right? Getting stuff in places is difficult, you know, especially today's more globalized world where you know, it used to be, hey, I need to be in U.S. East, maybe U.S. West, a couple other places. The idea of being at the edge and taking advantage or promising, like you said to your wife, if you want all the good stuff, then you're going to need to deploy your applications or put your opinion or do whatever it is in more places. And so Open invites more people to participate. And that's, from what I'm hearing from your background, a good thing. More, more people doing more things solves bigger problems faster. I think that's exactly right. I think there's three things, right? Three bullet points. Lower the technical barrier of entry because not everybody has pick and place machines and, you know, the capabilities to design hardware. So you, so you lower the barrier of, of entry on the, on the technical front. You increase the pace of innovation, which I think is a good thing for the industry. And you democratize or commoditize those things that really have no value. And I never understood why Dell and HP had different pinouts for a power supply. That never made sense to me. Right. Well, it's definitely 
you know, definitely something that we need to be looking at as we try to do more with technology and, you know, the, the world we live in today. And I know that we're all living very interesting and very different lives right now. And a lot of us, you know, are thinking about ways to solve problems a little bit quicker, maybe than we were even a year ago. And I know you're a forward looking guy. So you've been looking at the future, basically your entire career. Uh, but it seems like the future decided to, to come to today for a lot of companies, <laughs> kind of decided to make it a reality now. And are you seeing as a result of that, you know, as a result of everything with work from home and new experiences being digital being so important, is that impacting your business? Is that like, is that a thing for you? As frustrated as I think everybody is with having to deal with this pandemic for infrastructure companies that want to help make the internet better, it's been a blessing. And I would argue that if COVID happened 15 years ago, from a supply chain perspective, we'd be in a much worse situation. I mean, like globally, I think deaths would be much higher. Access to food and drugs and, you know, the things we need in our daily lives, I think that would be much, much tougher. So I think the cloud has been a huge blessing and a silver lining, I guess, for this, you know, really terrible pandemic. And certainly Vapor focusing on those things. This is the event has been positive for vapor, but not for a reason I'm proud of. Sure. I mean, it's just the reality. And I think it's, um, you know, it's like I said, fast forward at a lot of the things that were already happening, which, you know, technology and innovation is, is a wave that's hard to think about stopping. And so doing good with that and accelerating that where it makes sense. And like you said, driving towards more people participating in it, more companies, more whatever is, is part of your mission. Very interesting to see that kind of get sharpened to a point where it says like, well, there's really not a choice. You know, you got to think about these experiences and how you're going to be innovative with them. How are you going to add your unique value, right? Vapor's always had this, it's part of our, you know, sort of corporate culture. It's kind of written into our corporate culture, do well by doing good. Ben Franklin, 101. There you go. There there you go. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the original hackers, Ben Franklin, right there. So you got it. You know, had it all going on. Well, so let's let's close out. We got a couple more things to do here, which um, super exciting. I'm just like really enthusiastic about the vision that Vapor has, and is I'm sure you know people are going to hear a lot more about edge computing in the next year or two. If you could look into your crystal ball, what what does it look like? I mean, this is a you know summer 2020. What's it look like at the end of 2021? Like, where are we at as an industry? Certainly the, the edge computing and edge ecosystem has gone through the usual troughs and, you know, hype and everything else. Where, where do we land in a year, a year and a half? Yeah, I mean, and I guess I could answer your question in, in one of two ways. I could answer it in where are we as an industry, like building it out, or I could answer it in a, like, what are the experiences we're enjoying because of it? It sounds like question one and question two that I asked you about describing vapor. So let's do it both ways. Okay, sure. So as an industry, my hope is that people are using, again, open ecosystems and open APIs and open source to try and automate what they can. Because the other thing that COVID did was sort of make us all think about how can we do more with less interaction today. And so I think that, you know, automating our infrastructure is something packet I know cares deeply about, especially from a remote perspective. I think that that's generally just good for everybody. So I I expect to see more automation. Um, I expect to see more integration. But I think that integration happens 
at the data center and fiber level. I actually see the cloud companies, and again, just a bet, but I actually see more vertical integration happening at the cloud level. So the developer tools and you know the interfaces that you're already using in, the, in sort of your cloud of choice, I think that those ecosystems get a more robust vertically, but also sort of, I, I don't want to use the analogy of the Hotel California, but I think it does get harder to leave. You sure, the hotels are getting very nice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but the tools are going to be so good. I mean, you know, I, I remember reading something, I think Amazon, I think it was Amazon that announced uh, like almost a codeless mobile development platform. You didn't have to code. The trade-off you're going to get for that is you're going to be using those APIs, uh, which are available to you on Amazon. So, And I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing, but getting to Amazon, getting to Microsoft, getting to Google, uh, you know, the again, if we separate the internet out into like a nervous system, and a cardiovascular system, I care more about the cardiovascular system. I care more about the heartbeat, you know, and sort of the dial tone of the internet than I do the brains that are doing all the, you know, really interesting things uh, and, and creating these sort of, you know, higher order solutions. So I, I do see more collaboration. I hope that collaboration includes open APIs. So that's the first. The second, from an experience standpoint, <laughs> I just hope that as as consumers, we just get to experience all the cool back to the future like things that have been promised us. You know, 5G is supposed to be this panacea of go look at a shot on goal, you know, sit next to famous person X at the LA Lakers game and you know, like heck, I'd just like to grab a drink with you, Cole. That would be virtual fun. Come on. <laughs> right, exactly. We need we need uh we need 4D for that, Jacob. We need that's right. Maybe yeah, maybe absolutely. 5D. We need taste. <laughs> the holodeck. We need the holodeck. Where, cool. <laughs> if, if 5G can create the holodeck, then damn it, we did it. <laughs> Let's buy it. <laughs> but to uh, you know, to a, a person who is actually running a business, say a healthcare company, my hope is that at the end of 2021, we've made great strides to fix the digital divide, and I think we're close. If you think about what like Elon Musk is doing with Starling, if you think about you know some of the work that Vapor is doing and sort of bridging municipalities, like maybe underserved municipalities, and bringing that into a tier one kinetic edge where you know you now you know like there's a lot of people, a lot of kids working you know trying to trying to learn from home, and you should not, based on zip code, either have an advantage or a disadvantage to learn. And I, you know, that, that doesn't sit well with me personally. So if we can fix that digital divide, but then provide the safeguards and the guide rails. So as those kids go back to school, if that school is connected to a hospital and you get to do real-time contact tracing, you get some, you know, anonymized data that allows cities to react better. I also think that that should just sort of be built into what we call like, you know, a smart city or the next generation infrastructure. And I think that, you know, there's, there's ways to get there without being intrusive into privacy. I think there's absolutely ways to get there without having to intrude in someone's privacy. And so we've got to be mindful on the, on the governance of this data. But again, that's where data provenance, data localization, data sovereignty, that's where those things come into play from an edge perspective. And my hope is that on that side, it's almost just it's almost just seamless. It's just more internet and more places. Right, more more things in more places, but it works. I mean, in a way, like the internet does in this version, 
to most consumers, it just works. You know, now sometimes it works not as good as you want and we're trying to do more with it and it's stretching, but most people don't see under the hood where we're like, oh, that's not going to work out great. Most people are like, it's like air, I breathe it. And so that experience is kind of what we hope to deliver as we reach new, new kinds of services and new experiences for people. I'd say, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. It, it works when it works, but it, when it doesn't work, you know, it doesn't work. And why, do, why doesn't it work? Typically, it doesn't work because a human made an error. A human generally caused that, that bad route push config or that patch panel, you know, config that got updated. It's always BGP or DNS. Come on, we know it. It's one of the two. <laughs> well, well, you know, I am going to send this link to Paul Macapetras, the inventor of DNS, and we'll see what he's got we'll to say about thinks. this. <laughs> but, uh, but I tend to agree with you, right? It's usually BGP or some kind of resolution thing. And, you know, there's ways, there's ways in which I think that BGP is as old as, you know, I mean, we're, thank God we're not on RIP anymore. But, uh, you know, yeah, we're using 20, 30-year-old, you know, protocols to route bits and bytes around the internet. Okay, I got two questions is the closest hat. So the first one's softball, right? Which is vapor. Where did the name come from? What are clouds made out of? Uh, yeah, I got that. But like, how did it come to you? You were sitting there staring up at the clouds and you said, I'm, I'm, I'm that? <laughs> well, so I wanted, I wanted to, uh, there was a couple, there's actually three things. One of the first ideas that I had around vapor was there was a, a university in Spain that was working on like a metamaterial that as hot air flowed through it, it cooled. But the reason it cooled is because the material sweat and the byproduct of that was, was basically water vapor. And so that was really, really neat. Now it turned out to be that like that didn't work at scale. <laughs> there was no way to actually do that. Second was obviously, you know, clouds are made out of vapor and we kind of well, we're not an IT cloud company. We do think of ourselves as an OT cloud company. And then third, there was, is, was, is a company that had something called mist. And we're like, well, what's, what's even finer than mist? Like what's mist made up of, right? At the edge. Let's be a little contrarian from that perspective. And then obviously the fourth is everyone likes to talk about vaporware. Right. Everyone likes to talk about vapor where, where there's nothing there. Well, okay. So, so a little bit, and this was like 5%. In fact, our, uh, if you care about sensor any of the open, open source stuff that we do on GitHub, you can actually go to vaporware. So that's, there you go. But if we actually achieve our mission of sort of, you know, being um, prolific and excuse me, where our code runs um, and being successful, obviously the company vapor the term vaporware, I don't know how much longer that can persist, will have changed the game. And there's you know, a little bit of contrarian uh, view that goes in, into that as well. <laughs> I like it. Well, if you want to learn more about it, vapor.io. And so my last question for you goes back to the beginning of the interview. And you said you had a choice in high school. You're either going to sit down at that Linux terminal and figure out what the blue screen was all about, or you're going to go become a professional tennis player. So if you could play... 4G, you know, or 5G enabled virtual reality, a tennis with someone, who would it be? Who? Uh, so, uh, sorry, Jacob, you broke up for five seconds, but I think I got your question. If I could play tennis with anyone? Yeah, play tennis with anyone. Do they have to be a tennis player? No, absolutely not. Oh, man, that's easy. Christopher Walken. Okay. <laughs> I, I, love, I, this is I just think that'd be an, I think that'd be an incredible <laughs> tennis experience. I love it. So it's Christopher Walken and Cole Crawford 
you know, it's 2027 and we have our holodeck and you're playing tennis together. I got it. <laughs> I just, you know, you could, you could, I, and I don't do a very good Christopher Walken impression, but he's like, fast serve. That was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Your call. Okay. It was, it was great. <laughs> well, Colt, it's always awesome to talk to you about the future, about the past. I mean, all open all the time. And that, that what you guys are doing at Vapor and what you've represented in your career, you know, is this really fascinating mix of hardware and software. And so, like, I can't wait to touch base next time we can see each other. It's probably going to be six months from now. So the world will have changed yet again. Uh, but thanks for coming on and sharing all about Vapor today. I, I really appreciate the time, Jacob. I hope you and the family are, are safe and well. And um, I, I'm looking forward to that beer. Okay. Sounds good. Take care. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Over the Edge is brought to you by Vapor.io, the leader in edge computing. We want to be your solution partner for the new internet. Our edge co-location, edge networking, and edge exchange is built atop the world's fastest growing edge platform, the Kinetic Edge. Whether you're a telco looking to deploy 5G, a cloud provider seeking the fastest path to edge AI, or a network operator looking to exchange traffic and edge locations, Vapor.io is your solution partner for the new internet. Learn more at vapor.io.